Our passage this morning comes from 1 John, the book of 1 John, which is towards the end of the New Testament. You can open to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be starting in verse 7. First John chapter 2, let me start in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me pray. You may be seated. Father, as we now open your word to study it, to look at it together, to examine the truth that you have for us, give us understanding, Lord. Father, we pray for humble hearts to not think about who this passage is for, but to to examine our own lives, Lord, to see where we are not loving our brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray that you would show us Truly, from your word, what you have done for us, the glory of the gospel, and also how we can respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who have been attending our church for a little while, you might be starting to ask the question, why is Josh up here? (laughs) What happened to the Dustins? Has there been a coup? Has Josh secretly overthrown the Dustins and seized power? (laughs) Let me assure you that has not happened. Um, I love the Dustins very much and long for them to be back with us soon. Um, Dustin Rudolph and his family have been traveling for the last week. They were out of town just for a, a holiday vacation, much needed, I'm sure, and they should be coming back today, this afternoon. Um, So looking forward to that. And then 
Dustin Saunders, who was supposed to be preaching today, like I told you last week, uh, he got sick this week, so he thought it would be better if he stayed home and didn't um, spread that around. But God is good. He's still in control, and uh, he, he's using this, right? Um, whether he's growing me as a preacher through this or perhaps growing your patience as you guys deal, put up with me. Either way, God is being glorified and we are being sanctified. So we can praise him for that. Uh, and you'll notice this morning that our passage comes from the book of 1 John. Uh, this is the passage that I thought I would just preach the first part of last week, but then looks like we have an opportunity now to open up chapter 2 and look at the second part. So we'll be picking up right where we left off last week. And so to begin, I just want to kind of remind you, for those of you who were here, and then if you weren't here with us last week, let me just refresh or kind of give you a glimpse of what's going on in this passage. So 1 John chapter 2, this is a letter written by the Apostle John. This is John, one of the 12 disciples, and he is now older in his ministry, and he's writing this letter to a group of churches who have gone through some sort of traumatic split. Um, these churches have gone through some sort of traumatic event where false teachers had infiltrated the churches, they had been spreading these false ideas, and then had left. And we find all this from the book of 1 John itself. So there's not some secret knowledge here, but this comes from the book of First John, we see these hints of these false teachers, these people who say they walk with God and yet don't live as in accordance with that. So that's the context. John is writing this letter to encourage the believers and help them know that they are in the faith. That's his goal. And we looked at that last week when we looked at the very end of First John, First John 5.13 is the thesis statement for this chapter, that you may know that you have eternal life, that question of assurance. So John is writing this letter to help them know that. And there's two things that he does in last week. He showed us that there's two criteria that we should have in order to assess ourselves and assess others. And the first one was right doctrine, and then the second one was right living. Right doctrine and right living is what we saw last week and then I told you, if you kept reading on your own, you would see that the next thing would be a right love. How we love our brothers and sisters is a one way that we assess if we are in the faith. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see that John writes about love for the brothers and sisters. So he, he provides this, uh, but he also does a little, bit, a little bit more. So our structure this morning is going to be focusing right there at the beginning on that right love. Love for brothers and sisters within the church. Our second section will be focused on the gospel motivation that helps us live this sort of love. Um, so this will kind of be like Philippians if you were here for that. that. That gospel motivation is our second point. And then the third point is wrong love. So we are called to love our brothers and sisters, but we're also called to not love the world. That's what wrong love looks like. So before we, before we look at our first section, I want to I lay out kind of the thesis statement for this whole, what we're going to see today. Um, this thesis statement that through each section is going to point to one main point. And here it is. It's that true believers 
motivated by the gospel, love their brothers and sisters, not the world. True believers, motivated by the gospel, love their brothers and sisters and not the world. And we're going to see that again and again as we go through each one of these sections. So let's, let's look at this first section. Um, this first section is titled, A New Commandment. Let me read it for us. John writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new command, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay, so just like we saw last week, John with these introductions can be a little confusing. They're a little bit more poetic almost than than just straightforward. If I were to write this, I would be maybe a little more straightforward, but what is John doing here? What is, what is happening when he says that at the one time, at the, on the one hand, he is not writing you a new commandment. He's saying, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old commandment. But at the same time, I am writing you a new commandment. So what, what's he saying? What is this commandment? And what we see is that this is a commandment that is in the Gospel of John. So remember that John is the author of both 1 John and the Gospel of John. And John here is referring to a commandment that Jesus himself gave. And let me read it for us, because once you hear Jesus say this commandment, it'll, it'll make sense. Jesus writes in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So can you kind of see what John is doing here? He's referencing this old but new commandment. Um, This is a, Jesus says, it's a new commandment I give to you. But then he says that you are to love one another. But that part of the commandment is not new, is it? The command to love one another is not something that Jesus said for the first time, but it's actually an old commandment that we see from the very beginning. So that's why John can say this is an an old command that comes from the beginning. Um, In the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the part that is old, and yet Jesus has changed it. When he says, a new commandment I give to you, it is a new commandment, but how is it a new commandment? It's the old commandment, but instead of saying, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus has now almost edited and updated this old commandment and shown that we're to love even more sacrificially. Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. So whereas before it was, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this new commandment is to love others, not just as we would love ourselves, but as Jesus loved us. This takes this command to love others to a whole nother level. He is showing us a new standard, a standard that involves laying down our life, being sacrificial. Because he first loved us in that way, we are able to love our brothers and sisters in that same way. So that's why John 
is able to say, I'm writing to you a new command, but it's an old command at the same time. In the next section, we see that John writes, this command is true in him. This command is true in Jesus and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. So John here is showing that this commandment to love one another as Jesus loves us is already taking place. It's already taking place. It's happening in the world. Jesus demonstrated it. He loved this way. He loved his brothers and laid down his life in this way. And now, those who are truly his followers, filled with his Holy Spirit, by God's grace, are loving this way. You can think of this as a completely dark room and a candle is lit. And at first, it can seem, it can seem so small, so insignificant, right? It's not spreading very much light, but then slowly, as the candle multiplies, more and more people have their candle lit. Darkness is passing away, and the light is shining. This is what it means for us to be the light of the world, to love like Jesus. Right? We are made in God's image. We're, we're made to reflect his light to the world. If you've been with us on a Christmas Eve service, this is what is supposed to happen. Right? We, we turn off all the lights, and then we, we pass candles, and the room slowly gets lighter. Fortunately, this last Christmas Eve, we couldn't figure out the lights. So that didn't really happen. But in years past, that has happened. And you can get the picture in your mind. So John is saying that this love was true in Jesus. It was genuine in Jesus. And now it's genuine in those who are following him. And this is such a good reminder for us. I was thinking about that. That idea that Jesus said that the light is spreading. Well, John wrote this after Jesus had come and was raised. And now John is saying that the light is spreading. What Jesus started is spreading. You can think about the difference between even John's time and our time is incredible. How far the gospel has gone out now. And so while we are tempted to look at the world, we're tempted to look at our situations, we're tempted to look at the media and be discouraged and say, man, Christianity is really going downhill and where is God? Where is God at work? We need to remember, church, that the light is going out. The darkness is being pushed back. It's not loud. It's not in our face. There's not media coverage of this. But around the world, disciples are being made. People are turning from their sin. The gospel is being proclaimed, and because of God's work, people are coming to faith. Isn't that encouraging to remember? Jesus promises us that he will build his church. Let's not forget that he doesn't break his promise. He is still building his church. Even today, as we see discouragement around us, we can know that the light is spreading and the darkness is fading. So we should pray for that. We should continue to pray for missionaries and we can continue to share the gospel in our city, knowing that God is still at work. We don't give up. We don't hunker down and think that God is lost, but we know that his gospel is advancing. So that's, that's the first part, but let me see. Let me look now towards the second part, talking about the light and the love for the brothers. Let me read this in verse 9. It says, Whoever says he is in the light 
and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So this section is really similar to what John was doing last week, if you remember. There were all these phrases that we looked at last week that say, if we say or if we claim, and then they were claiming to be close to God and yet not following God. And John is doing the same sort of thing here. He is saying, how can you claim to know God? How can you claim to walk in the light and yet hate your brother? These two themes don't, don't go together. John is showing that true believers will have love for one another. This is the criteria by which we can actually measure our own faith. Is there love in our hearts? As you see someone who claims to be a true believer, is there love in their hearts for other believers? Or is it just something that they say? You see, I think maybe this is more prominent in our American churches, but because we lift up education so much, sometimes we can think the the real test, the real criteria for knowing God is theological knowledge of God. And, And that is important. But if that knowledge, that theological knowledge, that truth about God does not translate to a love for God and for other people, well, that person is not a Christian. That's what John is saying. And yet, we've all, we've all seen those people that they've been in church forever, and yet they're not growing more in love. They're not growing in kindness and gentleness towards their brothers and sisters. And this is one of the criteria. It's as big as right doctrine and right living is loving the brothers and sisters in the church. John is saying that as you grow in your love for God, it will produce a love for the people around you. And so I'm not talking here about having a bad day. We can all have bad days. We can be frustrated and irritated. But in general, what is the direction of your life? As we get older, it's exposed over time. Are we growing in love for people? Are we growing in ways of laying down our life and sacrificing for people? Are we growing? Are we just getting better at isolating ourselves and getting what we want from people? And using people rather than loving them. This is a really important message for all of us to hear and think about. And this would be really encouraging for those in the churches that John is writing to to hear. Remember, they've had these false teachers who came in, they were claiming to have this secret knowledge, this close connection with God, and yet the way that they were living was not loving. They were not loving these people. They weren't loving their brothers and sisters. And so John is saying, listen, these people that have gone out from you, they're not true believers. The mark of a true believer is love. And so I think the application for us is is easy for us to see. As we think about our own life, we need to examine where are we at? Where are we when it comes to this sort of love? you find that there's not love in your heart towards your brothers and sisters, we confess and we pray that God would grow that love for us, for other people. If we examine ourselves and we see that that is an area that we need to grow in, we don't 
give up, but we, we ask God to grow that, to mature us. And if by God's grace, you see that there is love growing in your heart, there is his love that is stirring in you to love other people sacrificially, then praise God, thank him, because this is his love. It's not your love. It's God's love that is working in you and through you to love your brothers and sisters. The Bible calls us to love everyone, but especially the brothers and sisters in the church, within the faith. So none of us are perfect at this. None of us are going to do this at a perfect level. But we need to motivate one another. We need to stir one another up to how we can do this better and better. Right? That's what the Bible calls us to do, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. As you think about it, we shouldn't just be content with the bar that the world sets for what is love. The bar that the world sets for how to love someone nowadays is you let them be them. You don't try to correct them. You don't try to influence them with your views. You let them totally be whatever they want to be, and you try not to offend them. That's a pretty low bar for loving people. And God is calling us to a way higher bar, to love people sacrificially, to lay down our life for one another. And I can remember really getting a a picture of this for the first time when I joined my college group back in the day, a while ago. Um, And so I, I joined this college group, and this was the first time I was surrounded by people that were serious about their faith, people that really wanted to live out the gospel truth. And I remember being in this group of people that loved God and being completely overwhelmed by the generosity, the love, the kindness that this group showed. People were always trying to outdo one another, to love each other. It really felt like the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts Chapter 2, when the the church is started and it explodes and then there's this group of people and they're all loving each other and they're saying, well, I have this, but you have a need, so I'm going to give it to you. And then if you have something that you're going to give to me, and there's just this whole group of people that are loving each other and taking care of each other. And God is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. That's what it felt like. This radical sort of love of laying down your life, supporting each other. Not, not being careful to make sure you're not taken advantage of, but just giving and loving and serving. And I can remember one of the biggest ways that I felt that love was when a friend stepped up in a huge way for me. So I was going to SDSU at the time and didn't have a lot of money, and my car just completely died. So just completely dead, on the street, couldn't move it. And so my friend, seeing a need, jumped in and said, hey, I don't live that far from school. I'll just ride my bike. You can take my car, drive it for the next couple months. No talk of me renting it or anything. He just said, hey, you have a need? Let me jump in. I remember being so blessed by that. Just thinking, man, this is what the church is supposed to be. Not this casual or cordial, hi, how are you doing? But this love of, if you have a need, let me help you. Let me jump in and and meet that need because by God's grace, he's given me something that that I can give to you. 
And this is just a small picture, right, of what that could be like. But I think our text is challenging us this morning to really think how we can do that. What gifts have God, has God given us? What opportunities, what abilities has he given us that we're able to love other people with? We can get creative. We can ask people what their needs are. Right now, in a time where there's a lot of sickness, maybe providing a meal, dropping it off. Serving someone that way or helping someone watch their kids so they can go on a date. Even doing yard work. Something that is practically showing people how that we love. So that's a, that's a challenge for us as a church. And I, I know that when we do that, as we love one another, as our light shines more and more, the world will see that and say, that's crazy. But I want to be a part of it. Jesus says that when we love people the way that he loves us, the world will know that we are disciples. And so as we finish up this section, what we see is that true believers love their brothers and their sisters. True believers love their brothers and their sisters. And so now we can move on to the second part of our text, starting in verse 12. And this section is titled Motivation motivation for not loving the world. So let me, let me read that again for us. It says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So in this section, this is a, it's an interesting section to study, and if you, if you read commentary, there's a little bit of disagreement, because John's words here are pretty clear. We can understand what they're saying, but why? What is John doing here in this section? And in a lot of your Bibles, it will be in a different format here. So what is John doing? What is the purpose of this? And we can tell that John is, in a sense, changing his tone now. Um, while he has been going after these false teachers and confronting it head on with the truth, now he is changing and providing some encouragement. He's just writing to his little children, which are the believers, and reminding them of the gospel truth. And so if you study this section by itself, you might be confused what, what's going on. But I think what he's doing here is he's, he's setting up the next section. John, in the next section, is about to go into not loving the world and everything that's in the world. And so before he does that, he reminds the believers of these gospel truths. He says, listen, this is who you are. Remember what has been done for you. Remember the gospel. Remember your identity so that he can go into this next section. So as we, as we study it, thinking about that now, we can see that John has three groups in mind. So if, if you look at your text, you'll see that he writes to little children, then to fathers, and then to young men. And then he repeats it. He writes to... Little children, 
fathers and young men. So there's only three groups, but he repeats himself and he goes and shares again basically the same thing. He might just be elaborating it on it a little bit. He changes it a little bit. And as best we can tell from this, and again, this is where some people disagree, but these groups are all people within the church, but just different, different groups within the church. This is not just to young men or to fathers, but when he talks about to little children, he's referring to everyone. When he says little children, he's talking to all believers. And John says that a lot in this, in this letter, that little children, little children, little children, he's referring to all believers. But then when John writes to young men, we believe that he's talking to young believers. This group of people is the young believers in the church. And then when he writes to fathers, he's writing to the older believers. Again, both men and women. And so with that understanding, let's look at what he says to, to all believers in the church. He writes, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And the second time he says, and you know the father. So John here is in reminding all believers of the gospel truth. He's reminding that all believers, no matter what level you're at, you have been forgiven. You know the Father. This is good news. We're at, at one time, you were alienated from God. You didn't know the Father. You were fighting for the wrong side. Now you have been brought into a relationship with God. Because of Jesus, there is forgiveness and there's access to God. He's reminding all believers that we have that. That that's a, a free gift that has been given to us. We are no longer alienated, but we are brought in as sons and daughters of the King. And I love how it says at the end of that, that you are forgiven for his name's sake. You are forgiven for his name's sake. What does that mean? It means that we have not been rescued. We have not been freed from our sin. We have not been adopted based on anything that we could have done. This was, not, this was not a draft here that God was picking the best and the brightest. Actually, probably the opposite, right? He was picking the weakest and the foolish. And he picked us not because of anything about us, but because of him and because of his name's sake, for his name's sake. That means that our salvation is something that we cannot boast in. It's something that only Jesus gets credit for. The bill goes to him alone. And I think about this. There was a time I was traveling overseas uh, with a missions agency. And in their kindness, as I was attending one of the training, this mission agency put me up in a really nice hotel. And this was a hotel that I could never have afforded um, because I couldn't afford anything back then. And, and I remember being at this hotel thinking, as I leave, if they come up and ask me, like, hey, are you going to pay for the bill? Like, I'd be like, nope, nope, nope. The agency's got that. Like, make sure to get that from them. There was no way that I could, could have paid for that, right? It was... It was a gift that was given to me, not something that I had earned, not something that I deserved, but by their grace, they had given this, and they were paying the whole bill for me. I couldn't pay that. And in just a small way, that points to what has been paid for us. Our guilt 
The, God, the, the debt that we owed because of our sin was building up day by day. And even just one day of that guilt was something that we can never pay off. And that's something that Jesus paid for us. For Jesus' name's sake, we have been forgiven. It's good news. So in the second section, we see that John addresses the fathers. Remember, again, that these are the spiritually mature. These are the ones in the church that have been following Jesus for a long time. Probably like John himself. He's probably an old man at this time. And so John writes to them, he says, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. You know him who's from the beginning. He says this twice. So what is John doing? Who is, who is this person that they have known from the beginning? Well, if you were with us last week, you'll know that John starts his letter and he writes, that which was from the beginning, right? that which we have seen, which we have touched, He's talking about Jesus. John is telling the older men that they know the one from the beginning. They know Jesus. And, and this has a connotation that it's not just a, I know Jesus, but they have come to know Jesus. Over time, as they have wrestled with theological truth, as they have wrestled with the hard things of Scripture, they have come to not just know things about God, but they have come to know God. They have a foundation, a relationship. So when false teachers come in and cause trouble, they're not shaken. They know God. I think this is a good reminder for all of us, right? That we shouldn't just, as Christians, want to know that we've been saved. I know John 3.16. I know that I've been forgiven, and I'm going I'm to stop there. But there's an encouragement to, to keep going, to grow in our faith, to go deeper. Sometimes we want to know theological truth so that we can wield it almost like a weapon. We can battle people. Well, my theology is right because of this, this, and this. But are we seeing what the theology points to? Jesus, the one who is true God of true God, from the beginning, existing for all time as Son with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Do we know him? Do we spend time with him? Do we have a relationship with him? The Bible is calling us to pursue intimacy with God. And it's encouraging these brothers, these older men and women, they know the one that's from the beginning. So finally, we see that John addresses young men. Again, this represents all those who are young in their faith. And he writes, I write to you because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one first time we see that John just writes they have overcome the evil one, but then he adds that they are strong and the word of God abides in them. And this is so encouraging for young believers, isn't it? As a young believer, what do you need to hear as you, as you get ready to face the world? You need to hear that you are strong. That God's word abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You see, by God's grace, for those who are young in their faith, while they're not perfect, by continuing on, by just getting up and living for Jesus every morning, they are victorious. They fall down, especially when we're young. There's so many sins that still pull at us and draw us into the world. 
And yet when we continue to get up after we fall, when we continue to confess, that's a victory over that evil one. Because God's, Jesus' blood covers us and cleanses us from all sin. We need to remind each other that we have victory over the evil one, that we are no longer in his world, but we've been rescued and we have victory. And so all of these encouragements, although they're to different people, we can all take this. And we can look at it as a, a reminder to grow in our faith, to not be passive. And we can, as we move now into the last section, looking at what it looks like to not love the world, we want to remember this comes from remembering the gospel. So from this section, pointing back to our thesis, this section has shown us that the motivation to love our brothers and sisters comes from the gospel. Finally, let's look at this last section, verses 15 through 17. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So again, we, we saw at the beginning, what, what are we called to? We're called to this radical, self-sacrificing love for our brothers and sisters. We've seen the motivation, and now we're going to see what are we called away from? What does wrong love look like? All of us are going to love, but what does it look like when we do that wrong? I think that John provides us with three clear reasons why we shouldn't love the world. And so I'm going to walk through those. And the first reason that we're called not to love the world is because of what it is. So we're called to not love the world because of what it is. Well, what is the world? And here, John is not talking about the creation. He's not even talking about all humans, but he's talking about a system within the world, a system of evil that has set itself up in opposition to God and his good plan. That's the world that John is talking about. So this can include ideas, attitudes, actions, and words that are all set up against God. Right? We, we've all heard this, this idea, these ideas that get in our head that want us to lead us away from God. That, that's from the world. Actions that we do that hurt others. That's not from God, but that's from the world. John, in the Gospel of John, he, he writes about this, this idea of the world. And actually, we see it coming from Jesus himself in John 15, 18. It says, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. Well, that's comforting. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, listen to this, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So as Christians, we've been brought out of this world, we've been brought out of this system of evil, this system that opposes God. We have been adopted as God's sons, now we're in the kingdom of light. That's why we can't love the world. If we were to love the world, then we, we wouldn't be able to love God. It would be in contrast. 
And so I want to clarify here, though, that what John is not saying is that if you even enjoy the world, right? That you, if you're even tempted by the world, if you're even drawn in a little bit to the world, then you can't love God. We know that's not what he's saying because all of us, every single day, are tempted by the world. But he's saying don't love the world. Don't, don't put your affections on the things of the world. Don't trust the world. Don't treasure the world. Treasure Christ. Listen to what James says about this exact same topic. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we wish to love the world, we cannot have the love of the Father. That's why John can write that anyone who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in them. Those two themes go against each other. So let's look at the second reason that, we, that we're called to not love the world. And this is, we're, not call, we're called to not love the world because of what it does. We're called to not love the world because of what it does. Remember, this, this, this system, this worldly system that opposes God, what does it do? It draws us in and it causes us to also rebel against God. Since it is in opposition to God, it's constantly trying to turn our affections from God, to trust worldly ideas, and to sin. And so John describes this in three different ways. He, he describes the way that the world tries to pull at us. He describes it as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These three things. And one of those themes is almost always behind a sin that we're drawn into, isn't it? One of these three themes is always behind something that is trying to lure us in, draw us away from God into, into sin. And here's the thing. It doesn't have to try very hard, does it? Naturally, this is what we want. Although we have been rescued, we've been saved, we still deal with the flesh. We still wrestle with the desires of the world, with this flesh that one day we'll put off, but for now we're still dealing with it. And these desires pull us along, and we willingly go sometimes. I think about a car that as you're driving, it's constantly pulling to the right. It has a bad alignment. If you take your hands off for just a second, the car's like, yeah, we're going right. That's how we are, isn't it? That unless... By God's grace, he's continuing to, to keep us on the right track with fellowship, with believers around us. Naturally, we pull off. And so the world comes along. You can almost imagine them just helping us along that way. We want to go there, and the world just keeps pushing us that way. The world tells us, God's evil for not letting you go where you want to go. That thing that you want to do that God says is wrong, well, he's evil from keeping you from it. If it feels good, why, why would God not want you to have it? And the world whispers these lies to us and, and takes us where we, where we want to go. So we need to be really careful. We need to be careful, otherwise we will allow the world to draw us off. And we see such a perfect example of this in the Garden of Eden, don't we? Right, Mike read this for us earlier 
this story of how Eve and Adam were taken off course. They were seduced. They were brought into the world's way. And so the evil one, the tempter, he's there with them in the garden. And what does he do? He tempts them with the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the pride of life. She sees the fruit. Isn't it, isn't it good? It looked good, and she wanted it. She desired it. And then the desire of the flesh. She wanted to experience it. This was something new that she had never experienced before. And she was drawn in with that. And then finally, the serpent had said, it will make you like God. That's the pride of life. She wanted to be like God. She wanted to be equal with God, but pride drove her to the sin. And so although it's a few thousand years later, the devil is still up to the same thing, isn't he? We fall into that same trap. Did God really say? Are you sure that's what he meant? If he had only known your situation, that's not that bad. And we make these excuses, and we're drawn in by the world and the system. And and as, as we think about this, this is why we need to be so careful with the media that we intake. What are we putting in front of our eyes? What are we allowing to preach to us every day? Is it God's word or is it the world and what the world wants for us? It can be easy to think, well, I'm just scrolling. I'm just watching a show. I'm not intaking it. But that's the number one way that the world gets to us, through our eyes, these thoughts. Sometimes we're even paying to consume this stuff. And unless we're really careful, we'll start to believe the world's lies. I'm not saying that we can't watch this without buying the world's lies, but we need to be very, very cautious. Especially for our kids' eyes. What are we allowing them to put into their brain? Are we careful? Are we making sure that they have God's word first? Or is it 90% garbage from the world and, and then a little bit of God's truth? If we're filling our minds with this, if we're living like the world, there's no way that we're not going to act like the world. And John is saying, do not love the world. He knows that that's our bent. That's what we are inclined to do. And so God, in his mercy, through John, is saying, do not love the world. God's word instructs us on what to focus on. He instructs us on what to set our minds on. I love Colossians 3, 2. It says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Not the things that are on earth. We're supposed to set our mind on those things. Philippians 4, 8 also talks about this. Listen to this. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We're commanded on what to think about, what to set our thoughts on. To not just allow ourselves to be drawn along by what the world wants us to think about. How the world wants to show us what we don't have, how we're missing out. But God's word calls us to fix our thoughts, to to think about what is good. Naturally, none of us go this way. 
We need God's command. So instead of putting the world before our eyes, we constantly need to be putting God's truth in front of us. Those of us who think that we are way more mature than we are need this, right? If you think, I've got this. I'm mature enough that I can handle this. Be careful that you think you stand, lest you fall. All of us need to be careful. We need to be looking out for one another. We need to be watching out for the ways that we're thinking, our little thoughts of the world slipping in. As, as we think about this, as we think about loving the world, all of us are naturally drawn this way. So in order to, to course correct, in order to not love the world, we can't just try to resist. I'm not going to love the world. I'm not going to love the world. It doesn't work. We need to love Jesus. We need to love brothers and sisters. As we grow in love for God, our love for the world will diminish. It will slowly be overwhelmed with our love for God. That's why focusing on the gospel is so important. You can think about this like a boy who falls in love with a girl for the first time. Right? We've seen this before. Well, before, maybe he loves sleeping in, video games, all these different things. The moment he meets that girl, his world has changed. He doesn't love video games anymore. What are you talking about? He loves waking up early and being with the girl, right? This, this new love has completely overwhelmed him. And so those things that were before so appealing are dropped like a bad habit. I don't need those things. I have something new. No, you guys don't understand that? I know for me, that's, that's definitely what it was like when I first met Sarah. I loved sleeping in, loved enjoying my rest days, and yet... That was the one time we got to hang out. And so no more sleeping in. I was up early. I was ready to go. And this is the same thing with the world. We are going to be drawn to the world. We're going to be drawn to those things until we die because we're in the flesh. And yet, if we focus on the gospel, if we allow God's love to overwhelm us, to see that his truth is so much better, then the world will slowly grow dim. That's our prayer, right? So finally, the reason number three that we don't love the world is because the world is passing away. John writes, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we don't love the world because the world is temporary. It's not going to last forever. If you want to invest in something that is eternal, love God and invest in the people that God has created. We know that one day, God will remove all evil from the world. This evil system that has set itself up in opposition to God will be removed. God will not allow this evil to continue forever. He will rescue us. For those who are in Christ, we know that one day we will be rescued and this world will be gone. One of my favorite passages, and this is also written by John, is found in the book of Revelation 21, 1 through 4. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that good news? We don't invest in the world because the world is passing away. We don't invest in it because it's, it's not going to last forever. Invest in what will last, in God's people. God's redeemed people who are eternal. You see, just as loving the world and loving God are at odds, the same thing is true for loving the world and loving people. When we love the world, the world causes us to live selfishly, self-centered, prideful life, lives. And that's, that goes against loving God's people. So God calls us to not love the world so that we can love his people. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what area of our life are we dedicating more time to into a world that is passing away? than into investing in God's people. As God shows you one of those areas that, that you're investing in, rather than investing in God's people that will last forever, pray that God will give you more love for his people. John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. Jesus is saying the life he, he calls us to, this life of sacrificial love for one another, it's not burdensome. He comes to bring us true life. While the world offers true life, while they offer all this pleasure, it leaves us empty. And yet Jesus wants life abundant for us. And that comes through sacrificially laying down your life for others. This is where we find true life. And so as we close this morning, let me remind you of the thesis statement. True believers, motivated by the gospel, love their brothers and sisters, not the world. Let's pray.